for the Tay Show today, the 18th of June 2006. I'll be talking about our upcoming Matariki Jukai, which is going to be happening next Saturday evening. Matariki, as most of you will probably have read in the, the newsletter we sent out a while back, is the name for the Maori New Year. And really it's our New Year. It's the, the winter solstice, the time when the earth starts turning back towards the light. Um, and the, when the, exactly when this is celebrated, it varies a little bit from uh, iwi to iwi. For Taitokara, which is the tribe in the far north and as close as Rodney, it's celebrated at the first new moon after Ma- the Matariki constellation appears. And that date w- this year is the 27th of June. So it's a, it's, it's sort of a broad band in, of time running from when that constellation appears through to the new moon and also afterwards that can be uh, considered to be a part of Matariki. The solstice itself, of course, is... Um, coming up in a few days, 20th to 21st of June. The This word solstice is interesting because it means when the sun stands still. And in ancient times it was um, viewed as the point in the ecliptic when the sun seemed to stand still. Of course, the sun's the one that is still and the earth that's moving, but this was the impression that people got. What it does mark the solstice is a change in direction. It's a little bit like the point, the stillness in our breath between an inhalation and an exhalation. It's the end of the days getting shorter and shorter and shorter and the start of the days getting longer. It's a turning point of the year. And all over the world, the winter solstice, this period, has been marked. It's really an honouring of darkness, of Mother Night, out of which we come and into which we return. And it's a recognition that Mother Night is the birthplace of light. Just as winter is the death that allows for spring to come, the rebirth of spring. So in a sense you can say that winter is the source of spring. In Maori tradition, this time of year is a time when the last of the harvest is done and also when the seeds for the following year are planted. So it's both an end and a beginning. The Matariki refers to the constellation of the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters. And there are two ways that this is interpreted. 
as, as mata riki, little eyes, but also mata ariki, or eyes of God. So in this tradition there is this element of the light in the darkness, this particular constellation associated with light and also with seeing. In the, the Matariki tradition is that people watch for its first appearance on the horizon, pre-dawn. And from the way this constellation looks, predictions are made about the, about the future harvest. So it's a, it's a time in which sight and light are important. In Buddhism there's a similar uh, meaning behind the symbolism of a lotus. The lotus blooming in a swamp is of, of purity this beautiful white flower emerging out of the mire, out of the putrefying mud, amorphous mud. In the Māori tradition, this was a time when offerings to the gods of the earth were made, rongo, uanuku and firo. For us, taking Jukai at this time, we're endeavouring to plant positive seeds, Dharma seeds. Jukai is the really the, the most important ceremony that we have in our tradition. It's a ceremony in which we make a conscious orientation toward enlightenment. We take vows. There's, there's no... In, in other uh, religions, prayer is important. But in Buddhism, it's vows. It's not some external... Uh, superior being to which we make supplications but rather we take responsibility for ourselves by setting our direction turning in a certain direction the word jukai is Japanese and it literally means ten precepts Actually, there are 16 parts to the Jukai ceremony, but the 10 cardinal precepts, you could say, are the core of the ceremony. And traditionally, we do this ceremony two or three times a year. I think at the moment we're doing it twice a year at the uh, New Year that's celebrated when it's New Year in the Northern Hemisphere. And now, and it's not something you just take once because we continually break the precepts and so we can repeatedly take Jukai as a way of renewing our commitment 
to live our lives in harmony with the law, the Dharma. It's important to understand that the, the precepts are not something imposed from the outside. In some translations they use the word training rules for referring to the precepts. And this is helpful. They really are um, guidelines which help us in our training. They're ways of behaving which are conducive to waking up. And underlying them, especially underlying the the ten cardinal precepts, is a single principle, and that principle is ahimsa, not causing harm. If we cause harm, we suffer. To cause suffering is to suffer. This law is, comes out of the nature of the universe, that there is just one mind. Another way of thinking of it is that the universe is a great circle. And whatever we send out, we receive. What goes around comes around. It's also important to understand that the precepts, taking the precepts must be voluntary. Nobody is saying you've got to do this. Nobody's telling you you must take the precepts. You do it if you want to and if you don't, fine. No one's twisting your arm. You can, if you're not sure about whether you want to take them, then you can just come along to the ceremony and see what it's all about. And if you feel moved to do it, then you're fine. And if not, you can just not take part. The precepts really are descriptive rather than prescriptive. They're how we would act if we had completely freed ourselves of the three poisons of attachment, aversion and delusion. So they're very exalted in that we all, to some degree or another, are attached, we do feel aversion, we do have delusions. So we, we're going to break them at some point. I mentioned to people last Sunday when we were talking about this that Vietnamese master Thich Nhat Hanh has a very good image for helping us to understand the nature of the precepts. He says they're like the North Star. We can navigate by them, but we don't ever reach them. 
completely. But we do try to do our best. That's, that's really the key with the precepts. The best that we, 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 we keep them to the best of our ability and to the best of our understanding at that point. Keep them as we understand them. And that understanding will deepen over time as we, as we free our minds from greed, anger and delusion. Then we'll, we'll appreciate the precepts more and more. Now I'd just like to talk through the ceremony, what's actually going to happen next Saturday evening. I have given a lot of more detailed talks on the precepts last year or the year before, which are available uh, as recordings. And I can't, in this, in one talk, I can't go into much detail. So we're just going to talk about them in general terms and in and also look at some of the other aspects of the ceremony besides the actual precepts and why we do things the way we do. Everything will start next Saturday evening at 5 when the Zendo opens for Zazen. It is really helpful to sit ahead of the precept ceremony if you can so that the mind is uh, more settled and uh, clearer so that they, when you do take the precepts it will really um, be more effective. And even before you get to the Zendo it's helpful to prepare yourself um, taking a shower or bath um, putting on clean clothes if you have a robe washing it and, and coming in a clean robe it's just a way of purification, I suppose. This is often this is something that's often done in different religious traditions to ablutions before something important. Um, in in Islam, there's a an ablution ceremony before people do their their five times of prayers a day. Then before the ceremony actually begins, the candles on the altar are lit as we always do at the beginning of any ceremony here, whether it's a chanting service or a taisho. And there are two meanings behind the, the candles being lit. They signify the dispelling of ignorance All the three poisons, aversion, attachment and delusion, all come out of our fundamental ignorance, our avidya, our not seeing things the way they are. And our job as practitioners is to see our not seeing. to become aware of the ways we miss the truth 
So the lighting of the candles is a concrete way of expressing illumination, awakening. they, They also are a way of expressing the transmission of the teaching, this precious teaching that comes down to us from the Buddha. A light passed from human being to human being. The candlestick, the actual candle changes, but the light is one light. Then as the kesu, the gong is told, there is a time when everybody approaches the altar and makes an offering to the teacher. There'll be little envelopes available before the sitting for you to put your dana in. And so you don't put it in the box outside, but just put it in one of these little envelopes that have it with you. Now usually uh, when you come to a sitting or um, something, anything at the Zen center, the the dana that you give goes to the Zen center, except at this ceremony at Jukai and after Sashin when dana is offered. On these two occasions, it's to the teacher personally, not just to the Zen center for administration of our sangha, but for personally to the teacher. And it's a way of just recognizing the reciprocal kind of nature of the student-teacher relationship where the student receives teaching and at the same time contributes to the support of the teacher, the teacher's material needs. But beyond that, offering is has deeper meanings. There's, offering is also implicit in every ceremony we do and, and in Azazen. The items that appear on, a, on an altar in a Zendo are offerings. The candles, the incense, the fruit, flowers, sometimes water or tea is also offered. These aren't on the altar uh, for the Buddha to somehow consume. That's not the meaning of offerings in Buddhism. Rather, they're an expression of our gratitude, a concrete expression. So when, you, when you feel grat- gratitude, you want to express it. You want to make it real in some way. And that's, that's why we have offerings on an altar. And it's the same with the the offering at the beginning of Jukai. It's a concrete expression. Also, there there is a meaning, a deep meaning in making offerings, and that is to offer something to to. It's a, it's a form of relinquishment. To give it, to give something is to give it up. In relinquishment, 
or and renunciation are central to our our training what we what is most important to renounce is our self partiality self partiality is the cause of our suffering. It's what makes us so lonely and fearful and ill at ease. So by having an offering at the beginning of the ceremony where we're starting off on the right foot reminding ourselves that that's what it's all about this process of relinquishment getting rid of giving up what is unnecessary what gets in the way and like taking jakai itself the dana must be freely given it's it should be what you feel comfortable with what feels appropriate what you feel you can do joyfully and with a a light heart. It's one of the reasons why it's suggested that you give it in in cash rather than write a cheque because then it's anonymous. You don't have to feel any kind of um, pressure from the way it's going to be seen, what it might look like. Because it's different for everybody. Everybody has different circumstances. And only the person who's giving it can know what's right and what's appropriate. There are stories in the sutras about giving. um, Often there'll be a comparison between maybe some very tiny amount of offering that somebody very, very poor gives and maybe a large offering made by somebody very wealthy and how spiritually that tiny offering by somebody very poor can, in spiritual terms, be huge generosity. Compared maybe to a rich person who gives with some reservations or, or unwillingness which diminishes the gift and that's, that's why the sense of, of doing what feels appropriate is so important after the offerings then, then we do a little bit of chanting the same chants that we did this morning Actually, the, the Prajnaparamita, the Kanzayon, and the Return of Merit. The chanting is a way of bringing us all together, unifying us in the one sound of the chants. And it's also a way of reminding us of central qualities that we are seeking to develop through practice two sides of a coin of enlightenment which are compassion and wisdom. Kanzayon, of course, is Avalokiteshvara, the 
the Bodhisattva of Compassion, and then in the Heart Sutra, the Prajnaparamita, it's really the essence of the wisdom teachings of Buddhism, very distilled form. And then the return of merit is important. The return of merit is really an antidote to our acquisitiveness. Even after we enter spiritual practice, we bring with us this mind of acquisitiveness. Of course, the teaching in Buddhism that anything we do, any good deeds we do, generate merit. But the problem with this is if you get into spiritual practice and your focus is how can I generate merit, then it's just another form of grasping. So in order to uh, sort of counteract this tendency we have to spiritual materialism, at the, whenever we chant or do a ceremony, we return the merit of, that we generate through the chanting or the ceremony or the sashin to the Buddhism bodhisattvas. We give it all back. It's relinquishment again. Give it up. The next part of the Jukaya ceremony is is the sort of preamble to the Jukaya itself and it involves a repentance. And it starts with a call to all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas to help us. Again, this, this part of the ceremony, this calling on um, these beings, these enlightened beings, is a recognition of one mind. one mind, one place, one moment. It's all, it's all right here. All the, the selfless acts that have ever been done in all the history of this and other worlds, it's all right here. It's all available to us to draw on, to gain strength from. These great spiritual heroes and heroines are part of us. So when we when we call on them on we say in this in this part of the ceremony um, talk about the merit power that fills the countless worlds. That, that merit power is the energy of all those selfless acts that these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas have undertaken. So we're opening ourselves to that energy. Then we recite together a gata, a verse, and the verse, we do actually do it nine times in total, in three sets of three. I've mentioned before in Taisho the importance of the doing things three times in Buddhism. 
because we tend, if we just do something once, our attention may not even be on it the first time we do it. So if it's something important, then we'll do it three times, just as we do the, f- the four vows through three times, or we do three prostrations. The idea is that by the time we do the third one, we might actually be doing it wholeheartedly. So in this ceremony, we actually do three sets of three. So I'm really hoping by that last time around that it's really sinking in what we're saying. And what we say is, all evil actions committed by me since time immemorial, stemming from greed, anger and delusion, arising from body, speech and mind, I now repent having committed. So in in doing this general repentance, we're really cleaning the slate, clearing the decks before we take Jukai. All evil actions committed by me since time immemorial. So there is an implication in this gatha that we've lived before, an implication of rebirth. But you don't have to, if you don't buy that, that's fine. You could think of it in terms of all evil actions committed by human beings since time immemorial. Because one way or another we suffer the consequences of all evil actions that have ever been committed just as we can benefit from all selfless acts that have ever been committed. So we're recognizing in in making this gutter, in in repeating this gutter, we're recognizing our karmic load, the, the karmic load of ignorance, stemming from the poisons, greed, anger and delusion. And then we say arising from body, speech and mind. This is a traditional Buddhist way of breaking down the different ways in which we act. We act with the body, we act with our speech and we act with our thoughts. So it's all of these, everything. Not just things that are seen in the external world but also our inner world. So our our actions produce karma, but also our speech and our thinking. All evil actions. Some people don't like the use of this word word evil here, because it has brings with it a whole load from from maybe from the religion that they were brought up in that they find troublesome. Some people have suggested that it should be harmful or harmful actions, but that doesn't quite cover the territory that is meant here because it's, we can do harmful things accidentally and that doesn't generate karma. What, what they're talking about here, what is, is meant here, is willfully harmful behavior. So conscious, when we make a conscious to- choice, 
to harm or to put ourselves before our well-being ahead of the well-being of others. So this repentance is is just a uh, an act of putting all of that down, all that load, that heavy load. We're just saying we're going to leave it behind. Of course, we'll still suffer the consequences of our past misdeeds, but in recognizing them. When we do suffer the consequences, we'll have an opportunity to undertake purification. Our recognition of them already changes the way we suffer the consequences in our lives. Everything shifts. We're starting afresh. Not denying, but acknowledging because that's the first step to moving in a different direction. That done, then we move into the Jakai itself. And we start off with just taking the three refuges, Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. These three refuges are shared by every single branch of Buddhism, Theravada and Mahayana. And they are the traditional entry point into the Buddha Dharma. To to go for to for refuge is to formally enter the way, to step into this teaching. Because it's not a guarantee that you will realize the way, but it's a good starting point. The realization takes more than just taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. It takes virya, this, this uh, commitment, this resolute commitment and determination to realize the Dharma. But but going for refuge and taking it seriously is a really important step in developing virya. It's a, a support to really finding that kind of determination and commitment. You can give a whole talk on this just taking the refuge and we don't have time to go into it in a lot of detail. But just to say that when we take refuge in Buddha, on the surface you could say we're taking refuge in the historical Buddha, Buddha Shakyamuni, taking him as our teacher and as our exemplar. But beyond that, we're really taking refuge in our own awakened mind. in our own potential to become Buddha. Taking refuge in Dharma 
is to is to take the Eightfold Noble Path as our map to realization, to take refuge in the law, the laws of the universe, impermanence, suffering of unenlightened existence, and the selflessness of existence. To take refuge in Sangha is to take refuge in the community of practitioners, people living the Dharma. To take refuge in this community as a place of our mentoring and a place of friendship spiritual friendship. In the wider sense, it doesn't just mean Buddhists either. It's really taking refuge among the wise, among anyone, with anyone who is, who is sincerely working on themselves, anyone of goodwill, really. There's a really um, helpful quote by Pema Chodron, which I actually mentioned last week in Taisho, which I'd like to just read in full. She's talking about what we're doing when we take refuge in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. To take refuge in the Buddha is to take refuge in someone who let go of holding back just as you can do. To take refuge in the Dharma is to take refuge in all the teachings that encourage you and nurture your inherent ability to let go of holding back. And to take refuge in the Sangha is to take refuge in the community of people who share this longing to let go and open rather than shield themselves. The support that we give each other as practitioners is not the usual kind of samsaric support in which we all join the same team and complain about someone else. It's more that you're on your own, completely alone. But it's helpful to know that there are 40 other people who are also going through this all by themselves. That's very supportive and encouraging. Fundamentally, even though other people can give you support, you do it yourself. And that's how you grow up in this process, rather than becoming more dependent. Somebody said to me the other day that he realized that practice was about taking responsibility for yourself. Not relying on something outside. Not hoping to get some kind of hit from practice or a community or some charismatic teacher. Just being responsible and responsive because they go together. Because that's who we are. We're lights unto ourselves. 
whole, complete and perfect. And, and really taking the refuges, taking refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha is a way of affirming that. After the three refuges, then we take uh, the three general resolutions. <coughs> to abstain from evil, to practice good, and to liberate all living beings. So the first one is, again, it's abstaining from willfully causing harm. Practicing good is just engaging in what's helpful, helpful behavior. Liberating all living beings, is this one was added during the time of the Mahayana. Previously it was um, something like pursue your own awakening with diligence or purification, but it got changed to liberating all living beings. This is the, the way of the Bodhisattva. One writer, Thomas Cleary, translates Bodhisattva as enlightening being. So this part is referring to our active engagement in not just enlightening ourselves, but enlightening everything, all beings. And it's pointing to the fact that awakening isn't some kind of personal or private matter. It can't be because of our interconnectedness. So it means, it implies that we we don't just sit to relieve our own dukkha, but that we, we engage in relieving social dukkha, the dukkha that's inherent in the way our communities and societies are structured, that we look to the well-being of non-human beings, and that includes so-called inanimate things, rivers, seas, wind. How do we do that? How do you liberate a coral reef? or a creek? How do you liberate a saucepan or a plate? That's what we have to discover for ourselves. And then finally, we uh, take the ten cardinal precepts. That's the final part of the Jukai ceremony. And I'll let me just read these precepts and then say a couple of things about them. I resolve not to kill but to cherish all life. I resolve not to take what is not given but to respect the things of others. I resolve not to engage in harmful sexual relations but to be loving and responsible. I resolve not to lie, but to speak the truth. I resolve not to cause others to abuse alcohol or drugs, nor to do so myself, but to keep the mind clear. I resolve not to speak of the faults of others, but to speak with kindness and respect. I resolve not to boast about myself, 
but to speak with honesty and humility. I resolve not to withhold spiritual or material aid, but to give them freely where needed. I resolve not to indulge in anger, but to practice forbearance. I resolve not to revile the three treasures, that's Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, but to cherish and uphold them. These first five, the, the first of the ten, five of the ten, are again they're shared by all schools of Buddhism. Um, Larry Rosenberg says of these first five that they're really just a bare minimum for civilized living. The second five are uh, specific to Mahayana Buddhism, and You get two more about speech. Obviously, uh, when these were developed, speech uh, must have been a problem because there's two that are really very similar. One about not speaking of others' faults and one about not praising oneself. Originally, in the first five, the, the one there about speech, I resolved not to lie but to speak the truth, was framed as I resolve to avoid false speech and you could say that the false speech included these other things that then get spelled out a bit more in the second uh, in number six and number seven false speech would include gossip slander boasting all of that because any speech which is affirming a separate self is false it's a lie and I think there's so much about speech here because it's so easy for us to to make things real through our saying or imagining that they're real through the way we talk about them, the way we conceptualize them. The one in the second half about not withholding spiritual or material aid you could say that that's the other side of the one in the first half about not stealing, not to take what is not giving. These are two sides of the same issue around our holding on to things, our acquisitiveness. Note that the one about anger doesn't say, I, I resolve not to be angry. It says, I resolve not to indulge in anger. We can't stop feeling the way we feel. Our feelings are our feelings. But we can decide how we act on those feelings and that's, that's the key point here with this one about anger. One also could say that all of these precepts really are aspects of the first one of our resolve not to kill but to cherish your life. Not to kill the truth not to kill others through our callousness, not to kill our awareness, that's the one about, about alcohol and drugs, that's really about not getting intoxicated, keeping the mind clear. Or you could say that they're all really aspects of the tenth one, I resolve not to revile the three treasures. Not to devalue others, but to cherish them. Because they're all Buddha. 
not to deny the laws of the universe, Dharma, to, to cherish community. It all comes down to serving life, upholding life. The root of the word Dharma is support. Then finally, after taking the ten precepts, it's declared we're all now members of the Buddha's family. In the, in the sutra sometimes it refers to sons and daughters of noble birth or a good family. Whenever we uphold the precepts, we're part of this Arya Sangha, this noble family. And whether or not we're part of it is determined by how we live, how we speak, how we think. It's really up to us. Well, our time is up. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.